may be seated. <clears throat> My name is Paul Joyner. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you uh, maybe are not familiar with the Bible, new to Christianity, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those in the pew racks and take it home with you. And if you are new to the Bible, um, we've just printed the text for you on page 8 of the worship guide. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we would encourage you to bring your Bible um, every week. Um, we, uh, we regularly work through books of the Bible if you're visiting with us. Um, and so we find ourselves here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. What one commentator called the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. When I was telling my wife that I'm preaching on Paul's teaching on head coverings, to, she said, Aren't you, are you sure you don't want to skip that? I was like, well, actually I do. And then Logan Peck told me this morning that every other uh, pastor he sat under um, has skipped that. And I thought, well... Um, they might be wiser than me. Another commentator calls it one of the most controversial and difficult passages in Paul's letter is found here. In fact, almost every scholar um, starts with those lines. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, reading through verse 16. This is God's word. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. Nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. We should ask his blessing and wisdom as it's preached. Let's pray together. Lord, the wisdom of humanity is like the flower of the field. 
It rises up and shows its beauty for a minute, and the scorching heat causes it to wither and fall away. It cannot stand. But the word of the Lord stands forever. It is light-giving and life-giving and makes old things become new and dead things rise to new life. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, draw us to the throne of grace that we might hear the voice of Jesus and see his glory and trust in him. Maybe some for the first time today. We, if you would do this, we would praise you. And so we ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. I want to ask a favor. I want you to grant me something on the front end. And that's this. That the practice of head coverings is culturally conditioned practice not for all times and places. And I don't think that's too much to grant because I don't see too many of you wearing head coverings this morning. Now... Paul never mentions this practice in any other of his letters. That's one of the reasons that it seems to be culturally conditioned for a time and place. Now, if you disagree about that, please feel free to wear head coverings. We won't judge you, but we won't also teach that as a church. But there is a way in which Paul, what Paul is doing here is he is taking biblical practice biblical theology and applying that theological truth to a particular setting within the church, particularly when it comes to the gathered community of God's people as they've gathered for worship. And so that's, again, one of the reasons that we don't think, that most scholars don't think that the practice of head covering for a woman is to be practiced in every culture, in every place, but is for this particular moment in the setting of Corinth. And the broader context is that Paul shifted his focus here in 11.2 and will continue this focus all the way through to the end of chapter 14 where he is focusing on when the congregation of God's people gather together for worship, particularly the way in which God's work in creation and God's work in recreation and making things new in Jesus Christ combine together to form how we function when we gather like this. The church is different when it's spread out than when it's corporately gathered together. And so Paul has a practice here in verse 2 through 16 that he's applying and Probably what was going on in that cultural context was that there was confusion regarding the distinction between men and women in the context of worship. Women were trying to act like men by taking their position and as a result were most likely dressing in non-traditional ways. Now, as regards head coverings, it could have been one of three options that Paul is talking about here. Either a woman was, he was telling them to keep your hair up in a bun. Don't let it fall down in a disheveled state. And he's telling them, you know, do this because in in that context, a disheveled hair was an invitation to promiscuity. That's most likely where I probably fall. Another option is that Paul, again, with head coverings, is talking about hair. And in this case, the women were actually shaving their heads to look more like men, or third option, 
that when the head coverings were a symbol, a piece of fabric on her head, perhaps a veil over her face or a shawl over her hair, um, and it served as a symbol. Regardless of that, the fact is that we just don't know. It's such a culturally contingent practice that leading scholar on the book of 1 Corinthians points out that he references 80 articles and books just on the question of what the head covering actually was, and he says none of them agree. Regardless of what the head covering actually was, it was clear. What is clear is that what was going on in the church of Corinth was that there was a great deal of confusion between the sexes. Women were trying to act like men by throwing off their position of responsibility within the household of God. And so regardless of what was going on on the head, as Paul often does and as the Bible always does, he is less concerned about dealing with what was going on on the head as to what was going on in the heart, which was a rejection of the created order of God's good design for husbands and wives. Now, it's just as a point, my asterisk, if you're taking notes, this mostly is dealing with the relationships of husbands and wives. For when Paul uses the words men and women together, most of the time he is talking about the relationship of husbands and wives. And so in verse 2, he commends them for receiving his teaching. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions. But then in verse 3, he begins to correct them. You've done this good thing. You've received most of what I've had to teach you for the church. But there's this thing that's going on. And I need to correct you. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, in this cultural moment, that teaching is an automatic defeater. If you're not a Christian, just me quoting that and saying that, you want to tune me out on just about everything else I have to say. I'm just going to beg you, hang in there for a moment, because in this, there is embedded a glorious story of Jesus' redeeming love and God's good design. Right? And there, there's this assumed truth that, that kind of is embedded in that defeater. One of the reasons that we automatically kind of bristle at this kind of teaching even if if you believe this is the bible's teaching you you kind of we kind of by default want to treat it like it's the weird uncle at christmas dinner we're like yeah you know we got to put up with them but we really don't like it but this is glorious but one of the reasons that it acts as a defeater for us and we automatically want to tune it out is because hidden in there's this assumption any distinctions between anything is automatically a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game is where there's clear winners and there's clear losers. And we assume that any distinction has to have clear winners and clear losers. For instance, 
You might say, we, we'll talk this way. I'm a night person. Well, I'm a, I'm a morning person. So those are distinctions. But then we quickly jump from the distinction to adding worth and value to the distinction. It's better to be a morning person. No, it's better to be a night person. And then we go the step further and we moralize the distinction into a system of inferiority and superiority. For instance, it's the early bird who gets the worm. And to bring that to the point at hand, in prior cultural moments, femininity got devalued. And so feminism rose as a movement up. And then in this cultural moment, masculinity gets devalued. Because we treat the distinctions like it's a zero-sum game where there has to be a clear winner and a clear loser. And we base that, we moralize it, and base it on performance. Well, if the world were run by women, it would be a better place. But God, God has built distinctions into his creation All over the place in his work of creation, there are clear distinctions that create the beauty. Day and night, land and sea, earth and sky, reptiles and birds and mammals and peoples of every nation and tribe and tongue. The diversity and distinctions is part of creating beauty in the world for the God who is Father, Son, And Holy Spirit, the variety and distinctions are glorious by design. They are God's good designs. And as they complement each other, they reflect a greater degree of beauty. And likewise, when male and female are embraced as God's good and distinct design so that we complement each other. It is gloriously beautiful. The failure to recognize this narrative, that distinctions are always a zero-sum game, is why I think gender roles begin to be such a contentious topic, even within the church right now, we want to explain away what the Bible clearly teaches, but maybe instead we should do the hard work of explaining the way the core fallacy of the culture around us, a story that has crept into our own hearts because it's the water we swim in, and that story is this. Your worth is based on what you do and whether others recognize you for that's the story that creates the conflict over any kind of distinctions and yet when it comes to gender distinctions and male and female and the roles within the household God has never attached worth to those distinctions because God created humanity in his image male and female In his image. They are of equal glory. As crowning achievements. Of his work of creation. God works up to a climax. As he's doing his work of creation. A crescendo in the symphony. Of creation. You can feel the drums beating. Creating the tension. Until it builds up to God's great. 
triumph. God created man out of the ground, gathered the dust together and created him man. But woman, out of the side, out of the rib from Adam, woman is his glory and the pounding drums turn into the cymbal clash and all the instruments rise together so that Adam joins the chorus and breaks out into the first song that's ever sung in praise to God for the glory of his wife. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Perhaps this is what Paul means in verse 7 when he says that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. You see, in the creation, in the work of creation, God has said your worth is in no way tied to your performance in this world, but your dignity, value, and worth is what I've bestowed on you and your distinctions as man and woman created in my image. That's very countercultural to detach worth from function and then to tether it back to something that God has done. Everything around us screams, you are only as valuable as your function in the world. And God says... I didn't write that story. That's not the story I've written into this world. The story that I've written into this world is created in my image, male and female, distinct in every way, together are glorious and yet different. But it gets even better with God's work of recreation, which is why Paul is really bringing this point up in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because when God's people gather together, we are an outpost of the new creation. We are, we are signs and symbols to the world that God is making all things new in Jesus Christ. That he takes the places of hopelessness and turns them into places of hope. And we can see that clearly when we gather together and we sing. People who were once dead to sin made alive to God in Christ. People were once separated from each other, learning to love each other because we've been loved by the God whose wrath was once on us, but now was placed on his son. And so this distinction doesn't get eliminated with the work of recreation because the heart of the gospel is in Christ, your worth is no longer tied to your performance or your contribution in this world. The only worth that one has amongst God's people and in God's household is a worth that's received from Jesus. And so in Galatians chapter 3, Paul's got this long discourse on how one gets standing in God's household. It's a discourse on justification by faith. How does one gain righteousness and get standing in God's household? How does one perform and, and be celebrated in God's household? How does one have worth in the kingdom of Jesus? And Paul's answer is there's only one way to have any kind of worth in God's household and that is put on Jesus. Be clothed in his righteousness alone. Take all of his works and simply with open hands receive them 
So his worth becomes your worth. Your status, his status becomes your status. All that is his becomes yours. So there's our assurance of pardon read today in Christ. All our sons in God's households and co-heirs with Jesus. That's the only way to have any kind of status and worth in God's household. We just simply with open hands receive it. God, I can't perform. I will no longer try to base my status on anything that my hands have done, but only what your son has done for me in Christ. And since in the household of God, there's no differentiation in standing. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male and female, all are offspring of Abraham. All are members of God's kingdom, heirs according to the promise. And so when God's new people with new standing in God's household, who are all equal in worth, dignity, and value, that doesn't eliminate the roles between husband and wife that should be on display when the church gathers together to worship the king who is making all things new. So Paul's point here, the deeper underlying point is that the beauty of distinction between male and female in the roles of husband and wife needs to be on display because we are practicing mutual interdependence. Note the instructions for how to dress. Paul actually deals with the Head covering of a woman gets most of the attention. But notice that he's dealing with both sexes here. Not just how a woman should not pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. Notice, by the way, that both are in the context of worship, praying and prophesying. Both are speaking out loud. Both are participating in worship. Both because it's one household in Christ Jesus. Both have their things to do. Verse 7, the man ought not to cover his head. Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that man wears long hair? It is a disgrace for him. Don't worry, Cam and Jeff. We're not, we aren't in ancient Corinth anymore. You're good. So the roles of headship and submission... Don't negate the interdependence. Verse 11. Again, to the point that there's no value or worth tied to the roles. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the, in the Lord, woman's not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. It's because there's different roles Headship and submission that are tied to male and female doesn't mean that we don't need each other in an interdependent kind of way. In fact, every single time that the apostles teach on this, they all do the exact same things. They go from talking about roles within the household to then begin talking about equal dignity and worth and interdependence. 
dependence. For instance, Peter in 1 Peter 3, when talking about the same roles in marriage, he again divorces roles from worth and talks about interdependence. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be unhindered. And so again, you see, God is putting humanity back together in Jesus Christ. That is what he's doing. He's taking all of the brokenness and reconstituting us as a new humanity full of hope and joy and worth and righteousness and value. And that includes putting homes back together in its created design, his good design. Verse 3. But I want you to understand. Every time Paul does this in Corinthians, he's sort of grabbing them by the collar and saying, this is my main point. I want you to listen to this. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of his wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And as a result, the wife being under the headship of her husband, she should conduct herself and worship accordingly. And just to be clear, what Paul means by head here, he means authority. But I think the word authority needs some biblical definition. Because authority does not mean the ability to bend the world to our wishes. Now, no one would actually articulate authority that way. But when we hear the word, that's what comes up in our mind's eye. A top-down structure where those under authority serve the needs of those with authority. We picture a room of executives who have the easy life while those under them serve them and meet their needs. Or a king or queen who's in a position of authority and are catered to by those under them so that they can have the easy and posh life. Paul's calling to mind a completely different picture of authority. Remember that within the whole point of 1 Corinthians is that the cross of Jesus Christ stands as the only center of God's people and it is like the sun. It is around the cross is that which we orbit around and cast its light on every aspect of life. And so in God's kingdom what Paul is calling to mind in terms of headship of authority is Christ Jesus and him crucified for his people. See, when the Bible pictures authority, it means something more like to take responsibility for in leadership. It's servant headship where the head owns the responsibility of leading and protecting and providing. That's mine. That's what a head authority does in other words just like everything else in the church the responsibility of headship of leadership gets shaped like the cross it's a weighty responsibility whose entire thrust is in service i will employ this for the sake of others not to make the world bend to me but because i have authority that's going to be shaped like the cross And that kind of cross-shaped headship bends himself to lead, protect, and provide for those under him. Which makes verse 3 read something like this. 
But I want you to understand that the one who has the responsibility of leadership of every man is Christ. And the one who has the responsibility of leadership of a wife is her husband. And the one who has the responsibility of, of leadership of Christ Jesus is God the Father. Because if what was going on in that cultural moment was something like the wives saying in Christ, we get to reject it and dismiss the responsibility of our husbands to lead us. You can jump down to verse 8 and you understand why Paul says something. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. And then in verse 10, that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, when we dance this way together, as different and yet interdependent with different roles but equal glory, we actually tell a glorious story, a great love story together. You see what Paul says in Ephesians 5 is that marriage is a sign of Christ and his church. Paul is evoking here very similar things, but he keeps going back to Jesus, going back to Jesus, going back to Jesus. And, he's, and in Ephesians 5, he says, he says, look, this is what's going on. Marriage is a sign of Jesus's love, authority, headship of his bride, the church. But then Paul goes on, he says, Paul, this isn't a sort of bottom-up analogy where God said, you know that, and you, I know you know what marriage is, because you guys kind of do that sometimes. Some of you are single, but some of you are married. So I know what you look, think a, a marriage looks like. So let's start there, and I'm going to tell you, that's kind of what is the relationship of Jesus and his church. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that God created marriage with the blueprint of Christ and his church. This is Jesus' headship and love for his bride. And then he says, so then I created marriage. So that you guys would have a working reference to understand at times, at times when it's glorious and good, at times what it's like for Jesus to love his bride and for his bride to submit to his church. And so the role of husband as head and wife in submission is not just rooted in creation, but in recreation too, in the gospel. The son, though he was God, considered his father's plan more significant than his own wishes. More significant than himself, and he put aside his own ambitions to serve the father's plan. That's what's led to our salvation. And now God, the Spirit, it made the Son become the perfect man in his submission to the Father's plan. And then the Spirit who comes from the Father and the Son has made it his mission not to bring glory to himself, but to make Jesus famous and to serve his mission in the world in Humble submission. We need to maintain these authority structures in the family and as we gather together as God's people because we are telling the great love story of Jesus' love for his bride to the world. Husbands, you are the head of your wives. That is a declaration of what is by God's good design it is something that you have to submit to yourselves. 
you will be held accountable for this. Men who exert their authority in a heavy-handed way, a man-centered, self-ish way, will be held accountable for the mishandling of that authority by Jesus Christ who judges all things. He is your head and he will hold you accountable for how you have managed that authority. You have either managed it in the way of the evil one for his own good and your own good or you have bent yourself for the sake of those that you lead, protect and provide for. Take leadership of your home. Again, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself with splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. You be thinking about the spiritual needs of your wife. Where does she need to understand the grace of God more deeply? You need to study her so that you know where her deep wounds are so that you can apply Jesus and his healing promises to those that she might be made new just as he has done for you. This is the mark of masculinity. To lead in a way that bends yourself for the sake of others. That's what masculinity looks like. Look, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't like to hunt. I don't even own guns. Not that I'm against. I just don't. I don't like to camp. I don't get the point of packing up all the things that are in my house and I'm already comfortable with. And creating a surrogate home where I'm uncomfortable someplace else. I mean, whatever your picture of masculinity looks like, I'm not even sure what masculinity looks like. Um, when I was working on this sermon, I posted our staff Slack channel that I was making cucumber sandwiches and creme brulee and working on this, this sermon on head coverings. <laughs> it was good creme brulee. I'm not sure what masculinity looks like, but I can tell you what it does. It bends himself as he leads his household into the glorious riches of Jesus Christ. So that he might join with Jesus in presenting his wife without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So that she might be holy and without blemish. Younger brothers, this is an uphill fight for you. Everything around you is screaming to reject this truth. Have courage. Fight hard. Not for the role, but to carry out your responsibility. Take charge of your home and lead your household. Lead. Lead, lead, and die in the process for the sake of those who God has given you. This is, by the way, why it's such a test of an elder that management of his household needs to be a priority. 
The home is training ground for future leadership within the church. And the church needs good, godly, courageous men who lay down their lives, take up their cross, and lead to shape others into the image of Jesus. Wives, this is a symbiotic relationship. Submit to the headship of your husbands. To be in the place of service and submission is to take up the glorious work of Jesus and to embrace the glorious privilege of femininity. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. It's not a diminishing of your role, but a rising up to the glory of what it means to be created in the image of God as female. You are reflecting the work of the Son and the Spirit in some capacities too. And so listen to his leadership as he leads your family. Submit to his authority. Bear his burdens. Apply your strengths in support of his weaknesses because he's got them and you know what they are. This is complementary interdependence. Approach him with tenderness and he will lead your home in glorious procession to the throne of grace. Create a home where the gospel permeates everything you say and do. Make yourself beautiful with a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That sounds offensive in our cultural moment, but remember that Jesus was the one who was called by his own name. I am the gentle one, and I'm lowly. He's not calling you to something less than, but to the greater heights of exhibiting what is uniquely yours as a woman in your household. And only you can reflect part of his design. Perhaps this is what Paul means, and I'll close with this. Perhaps this is what Paul means in verse 10 when he says this. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Angels are such, a, are such glorious beings that when, when people encounter them, when they're unveiled, off, sometimes they're hidden, their full glory is hidden, but when their glory is unveiled, people fall down and worship them. And yet they're servants around God's throne. That's their function, is to serve and submit to God's design. They are his army carrying out his decrees. And one of those service tasks is to guard and protect the church of Jesus Christ. And as such, they're an audience of what God's doing. Even as we gather together, the angels are around us. You can't see them, but the heavenly hosts are gathered to say, look what God is doing. And he's doing his work of recreation in the church. And so you can imagine now as the husbands act as heads and wives submit to the authority, there's a heavenly host, an audience saying, look what they're doing. They're playing out the greatest love story that's ever been written. And they're sitting on the edge of their seats with anxious anticipation as we play out the love of Jesus for his bride who bent himself for her own good and the submission of the son to the father's plan and the love of the bride of Jesus to her head. The, the angels are erupting saying, look at that, look at that. And as we do this, they erupt in praise 
to God. Who is he's putting households back together. He's doing so because he is making all things new. To him alone be a glory and our strength and our hope. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table, it's anticipation. This table is just a sign. It's a temporary sign for us as we travel. What awaits us is a glorious feast, a bridal feast, where your church, your beloved bride, sits down with you in the home that you've made for us in the new heavens and new earth. You've bent yourself for our good and you will not rest until all your power and authority is exerted to bring us into our long-awaited home. And we would pray that you would take these ordinary elements this morning of bread and wine and use it to nourish us as we wait that day and journey with you to that place. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.